Our Father, your word is light. And in it we see uh, the darkness dispelled and your goodness is made manifest. Please uh, teach us of your goodness and your glory this morning that we might worship you as we should for your name's sake. Amen. Well, I've been thinking this week about how great art can give us insight into the deepest aspects of the human condition. Ali's sort of smiling uh, down the front here. For illustration, I give you the American 19th century poet Henry David Thoreau. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. Familiar words if you know the film Dead Poet Society. Uh, Thoreau, you see, he wants to live truly. To do that, he wants to face up to all the essential facts of life, to mine the truth and to guide his life in such a way that when he comes to die, he finds that he's actually lived. Not just breathed in and out, but actually lived in any meaningful sense. As far as I know, Thoreau was never a Christian. But his words are uh, still timely, aren't they? 160 years after they were written. He says again, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. That sense of longing for something more and never finding it. Or consider the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning play, The Death of a Salesman. In the play, the central character is uh, Chuck Willie Loman, who, uh, as a young man, encounters a salesman and decides that this is the way to achieve a meaningful life, to be a a successful salesman, to, to have all the world at his fingertips. And yet, as he gets to be an old man, and looks back on his life, at all the things he didn't invest his time in, his family, his character, he realises in Thoreau's words that he had not lived. He chased a dream, and moreover somebody else's dream, and never really lived in the real world. The same thing is found in Tolstoy's classic, The Death of Ivan Illich, and I guess probably in a whole bunch of other books with death in the title as well. Of course, uh, today's secular person would say to Willie Loman that his great mistake was to follow somebody else's dream rather than his own. Today's mantra, after all, is be yourself at all costs. To which I think Thoreau would respond, how can you be authentically yourself when your identity is so dependent on others? Think of uh, the teenage girl who goes all goth just to rebel against her mother and then finds in old photo albums her mum all punk rebelling against her grandma. In an attempt to be herself she's following a well-worn path and has become her mother. (laughs) Our sense of self is constructed from a thousand pieces of a hundred different jigsaw puzzles, aren't they? Uh, Those pieces of the family and our friends and our education and our legal system and the culture we've grown up in and the films we watch and the books we read. We're bits of all of those things. To be yourself is really only to be what the world has made you. A collage of ill-fitting pieces. And Thoreau would still ask, how is being myself related to the essential facts of life anyway? He says elsewhere, every generation laughs at the old fashions, but follows religiously the new. Uh, Rejecting tradition is a tradition. And embracing every new thing is not a new thing. 
And in every generation, men lead lives of quiet desperation. Maybe not publicly. We are uh, fans of the stiff upper lip here in Britain, aren't we? But in the solitude of our hearts, when we have uh, quiet to reflect, we find these fractured collages unsatisfying. We don't know who we are or what life is for. Go to the woods, says Thoreau. Find the essential facts lest you get to the end and find in the final moment that you have not lived after all. Behind all of the questions that we might ask, who am I? Why am I here? What's it all about? What's right and wrong anyway? Behind all of those questions that seem so relevant to us is one question which is most fundamental and foundational to all. Who is God? Get this wrong and we will get everything else wrong. Get it wrong and you cannot hope to get to the end of your life and find that you have lived. It is that important a question and it's why Moses starts here in the Bible. Let me give you a little context. We are at some time in the late second millennium BC, maybe 1250 BC, something like that. Moses is about to die and the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land. They're about to become a nation for the first time, a God's chosen people. And to help them live as God's chosen people in the promised land, Moses writes the first five books of the Bible. And this book, Genesis, is the book of origins. That's what the title Genesis means. It answers the question, who are we? For the Jews and for us. See, for the Jews, Moses could have gone back to Abraham, started Genesis 12. You know, let's start with Abraham, the father of the nation. But he doesn't start there. As a species, he could have started with Adam, couldn't he? Sort of the end of chapter 1 and particularly chapter 2 onwards. He could start there. That would be enough for us to understand who we are, surely. But Moses doesn't start there. He starts with the creation of the universe. Or rather, he begins with the God who created the universe. We start here, or we will completely misunderstand who we are. If we don't get the God question right, then we will get every other question wrong. We may even ask the wrong questions of ourselves. So we start with God, and we must start clearly with the the obvious question, which is, or the statement, which is, there is a God. See, maybe you've come here as a guest this morning, you're not entirely persuaded... Uh, the, the first four verses of Genesis here are correct. In the beginning, God. I take it the first three verses, are, for three words aren't a problem. We understand, I think, that we're here. We believe that the universe exists. And uh, ever since uh, uh, Einstein and Hawking put their theories together, we're pretty persuaded that there was a Big Bang, there was a beginning. <clears throat> that time and space and matter sprang into existence from nothing at some point in the past. I don't think we have a problem with in the beginning as a culture, although I believe that some of the scientists did when they realised in the 1960s that they were confirming what Genesis 1 had always been saying. How awkward it is to be someone as bright as Hawking, climb to the top of your your tree and find that the theologians have been there for centuries. Where we might differ, I think, is on what caused the nothing to become something. And it seems to me there are two options here. Either you accept that the universe created itself, 
or something or someone else did. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis at this point, which is more likely that the egg laid itself or that there is an eternal chicken who laid the egg? In the end, you have to answer the question, what is the uncaused cause of all things? There is an all things, isn't there? We're here. We see the all things all the time. Why is there something rather than nothing? How does nothing become something? And perhaps uh, equally relevantly, we might ask the question, how is it that this universe came into being? This universe that is so fine-tuned for human life? And the Bible's clear answer to both of those questions is God. For what it's worth, I find that far more satisfying than the universe that didn't exist made itself exist. I think that seems far more difficult to believe, frankly. So let's assume for the moment that we're agreed that that God at least is a possible answer to the question. Uh, Let's look at what Genesis has to say about God. So using that word God, everybody uses it, don't they? Allah is the, the Arabic word for the same thing. God. And it's such a vague idea that we need to give some definition to it. That's what Moses does here in these first few verses. He wants to give us content to that word. In particular, I think, he wants us to grasp that when we use the word God, we must mean creator. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Now, let's be careful at this point when we use the word created. I like to be creative in the kitchen. My son likes to be creative in turning a pile of stuff into a different pile of stuff, preferably with explosions. But the point is, when I create, I'm never completely original. I use some stuff, flour, eggs, sugar, whatever, and turn it into a cake. And I follow a recipe, somebody else's idea of how to make a cake. So I'm taking somebody else's ideas and some stuff and turning them into other stuff. I don't just say the word cake and it appears out of nothing. That's not to disparage creativity. Anybody who's seen one of Ali's exhibitions will happily affirm that creativity is wonderful and, uh, and, and really stimulating and beautiful. But the way that we create is not the way that God creates. You have to come back next week as we look at, at the rest of Genesis 1 and the, the days of creation to see fully what's going on there. But let me make a comment for this stage. For God to have created everything, he must have started with nothing. That's what the word everything means. God creates everything, therefore he began with nothing. Not time, not space, not matter, not a recipe, nothing. God's creating is as different to ours as his being is from ours. We are material, we are physical, I am here and therefore I cannot be in hull at the same time. Praise the Lord. But God existed before there was time and space. He is a spiritual being with infinite power to create whatever comes into his head. If he had a head, but he's not material. So let's not go there. When we say God, we mean a spiritual being who created everything. And this is foundational to everything that will follow in the Bible. 
Just think about some of the places where this creative power comes into uh, use in the Bible. Think of God creating the baby that would be born to a virgin. Or the God who speaks to spiritually dead people. Yes, breathing in and out, but spiritually dead. And he speaks new life. Turns dead people into new creations. The God who will speak and uh, this universe will be wrapped up and burned. And a new heavens and a new earth will come down from God. Think of Jesus walking on water. And feeding the 5,000 with uh, next to nothing. This creative power is fundamental to who God is. There is a God. But secondly, uh, there is one God. We have to be more specific than saying there is a God. Our text here leads us to say there is one God. And I think, if anything, that's the main point of uh, this little two verses. Uh, Moses makes the point in a number of ways. Let me show you uh, three of them. Uh, First of all, uh, he starts with the word God. In the Old Testament, there are two words for God. Uh, You'll be familiar with this if you've been around for any length of time here. Uh, The word that we uh, get translated Lord in capital letters in the Old Testament is the word Yahweh. That's the name for the God who is in special covenant relationship with the people of Israel. The God of the church. The God who makes promises and keeps them. But there is a a more common word. It's the word Elohim. It's the word that gets used here in Genesis 1. It's a word that's common to all of the Semitic languages. It's a word that would have been familiar to people in Egypt, where uh, Moses has just led the Israelites out from. It's the word for the God of everybody. Because the God of the Bible is not just God of the church. The God of the Bible who made everything is God of everything. He's the God of every person, every place, every time. And Moses makes the point again. So uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase, the heavens and the earth, is what we call a merism. If I said to you, uh, from east to west, you would understand two points along... Actually, it's that way, isn't it? East to west. North to south. Two points distant from each other and everything in between. I've travelled from one place to another and I pass through everything in between. That's how merism works. You state two things that are opposite to each other to encapsulate everything that comes in between. And that is what's going on here. The heavens and the earth. The land and the sky. the, The visible physical things and the invisible spiritual domains. Everything that exists. And the point here is this. There is God the creator and there is everything else. All things in the universe are either God or things that God has created. The heavens and the earth and all the kingdoms in them are all created things. They are not God. There is only one God. One creator, one power. Well, okay, you say, but but what about other spiritual powers? What about uh, demons, the devil, the dark side, the yin to the yang? What about all those that balance thing? And we live in a world that is broken, don't we? A world that is on the one side beautiful and on the other side terribly dark. It feels like the universe is in that balance, that cosmic battle between light and darkness. Well, let's look at 
chapter 1 verse 2 and see what Moses says to this. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Teach them more Hebrew. Uh, that word deep is the word tahum. And again, it's another common word to the ancient Near Eastern cultures. It was the word for the yin to the yang. It was the idea of uh, primordial darkness. Uh, For uh, cultures which have uh, equal and opposite powers of good and bad, of light and dark, uh, Tahum was the dark side. It was the evil power to match God's power. But did you notice how Moses presents the deep? Did you notice? Not two equal powers, because the Tahum is part of the heavens and the earth, created by God. There is God, and there is everything else. And in fact, the Tahum, the, the chaos, is the stuff that is tamed all through this rest of chapter 1. So notice verse 3. Okay, the, the darkness, the deep, first thing God does, let there be light. Let there be light to rule over the darkness, to tame the darkness, to put limits on the darkness. There is only one power, one creator, one God. More than that, notice those very first four words. In the beginning, God. At the beginning of time, at the beginning of everything else, God was already there. Everything else is finite. The rocks and the stars are finite. They had a beginning. Because matter and space and time had a beginning. But God is eternal. And it's hard to get your head around that, isn't it? Infinite in time, but, but he existed before there was time. You can't measure how infinite the time was before time existed. He just was before there was any time. God is separate from his creation. He made it and it depends on him. But he does not depend on it. If if we took the universe and wrapped it up and burned it, God would still be God. He would lose nothing of himself. Because he was infinitely, perfectly God before all of these things were made. He existed happily before he made one atom. God is eternal all-powerful creator of everything else. That's the measure. That is the Genesis 1, 1 and 2 definition of God. And so whenever we ask the question, is this person, is this thing God, we have to satisfy those criteria. But let's turn the question a little bit. Who is God? If you like, that's what God is. Who is God? God is the eternal creator If you are not the eternal creator, you are not God. But does this mean that the whole idea of Trinity is is out the window? What about Jesus? I mean, he stepped into creation, right? He had a beginning. Does this idea that there is one God hold below the waterline, this idea of Trinity? Well, look at verse 2 again. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In other words, spirit there, and all through the Old Testament, is the word breath. So it might just be a reference to the breath of God coming out of his mouth, hovering over the waters. But I take it from the rest of Scripture that it's very clear that uh, the translators here are right to capitalise the Spirit of God. This is the Holy Spirit with God creating at the beginning. But more than that, you see, if we go somewhere like, say, John 1, 
In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And all things were made through the Word. So do you see, you've got God, the Father if you like. And he speaks Word, the Word of God, Jesus. And the Word of God is carried on the breath of God, the Spirit of God. And there you are, the three persons of the Trinity. One God in three persons at the creation. I think of Colossians 1.16. For in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth. Do you hear the echo of Genesis 1.1? The merism. Things in heaven, things on earth. Everything that was made was made by Jesus and is upheld by the power of his will. There is one eternal God who created everything and he exists as three persons in perfect unity. And if that seems bonkers to you, come and see me afterwards. Let's chat about the Trinity. I'm sure we can sort it out in five minutes, can't we? (laughs) But here let me turn back to Thoreau and the longing for the essential truths of life. To make sense of life. So that when we get to the end of life, we have found that we lived. When we say that God created, we are saying that creation is personal. It was not the random act of a cold, dispassionate universe. You are not a random collection of atoms, as if the creation could create itself anyway. Because it is personal, it is deliberate, and therefore it is purposeful. There is an eternal, powerful creator God behind the universe. And if that is so, then there is a coherence to the universe. Everything came out of his mind and came into being to fulfil a purpose that he had. A purpose that everything has. When we look at beauty, when we see anything in creation that delights us, when you watch Federer versus Chilich later on today, you may not do that, but if you do that, and you see the artistry and the, the beauty of the tennis that will be going on, what should you do? You should turn and praise God because he created beauty. He created skill. He created those men to wow us with the capacity of human beings to create and recreate. Everything has meaning. Everything has meaning only because God purposed it, gives it meaning. And now suddenly Thoreau's words have more bite, don't they? Because now, seeking the meaning of life is not wishful thinking. We don't just go out to the woods and hope that something falls on us out of a tree and suddenly we have the meaning of life. Now we know that going to God is going to the one who tells us what we're about, why we're here. It is essential to come to this God if we are going to find meaning and purpose in our lives. Well, what are we to do with this? What's our response to be at this point? We're only two verses in. At Genesis 1, at, you know, we're going to take three talks in Genesis 1 to 2, 3. You know, and there's much more to be said in Genesis before we can, can nail everything down. But let's think where Moses takes this for a moment. Remember, he wrote the whole first five books at this same point in time to teach God's people how to respond to this God. So think about Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3 for a moment. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods besides me. 
Same claim to exclusivity, isn't it? God who created, God who redeems, the one God who does both of these things has every right to say, worship me and no other thing. Because I alone am God and all other things are created. All those other things that you would worship depend on me for their existence. Or or God speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. And so immediately what does he say? How does he apply those teachings? All who make idols are nothing. doesn't say the idols are nothing. Did you see that? We become what we worship. And if the idols are nothing, if they are not God, they are created things, then we become nothing if we worship them. Get to the end of life and find that you have not lived. Do you hear how scandalous the Israelites were being in the days of Isaiah? They had the God of the universe, the God who created all things, the only God, had chosen them. He was their their special God. They were his special people. There was a, a relationship God had spoken. This is how you are to live. This is how you are to flourish. This is how you are to receive all of the blessings of being my special people. And they were worshipping created things. Do you see how horrendous that is? Taking good things that God had given and turning them into ultimate things and worshipping them instead of God. The God on whom they depend for life and breath and every single thing. Two great scandals. To treat God as though he were not God. We're not the centre of all things. To push him to the margins and ignore him. And a double, to double the offence, to take a created thing made by God and treat it as if it were God. Two great scandals. But there is only one God. One last reference in how to apply this. Uh, this time from the book of Revelation, uh, but chapter 4, verse 11, reflecting on the praise of the people gathered in heaven. What is it we're praising God for, for all eternity? You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. Every good thing that you have, everything that you delight in, it's not wrong to delight in those things should turn your heart back to God in praise because those things exist only because he wills it. It is God who is worthy of our worship. God alone is worthy. And you may say, I'm not a worshipper. I'm I'm an atheist. I I don't worship anything. Don't deceive yourself. We are all worshippers. We were made to worship. God made us with the inbuilt impulse to worship something. And our hearts are restlessly searching for one to worship who is worthy. And so if you're wondering what it is you worship, let me ask you, what is it that if you lost out of your life would gut your world? That would render your life not worth living anymore? Or or what is the thing that makes you feel like your life isn't worth living now because you, you desire that thing that you haven't got yet? What is that thing that you live for? What is the thing that you dream about and fantasize about and, and pursue with all of your energies? What is the thing that would destroy your world if it was gone? That is your God. What is the thing that you think gives your life meaning and value and purpose? Because if it is not the eternal creator, then you will be disappointed. It will be taken from you or you will be taken from it. There is no God but one God. 
How many of us look for our meaning in people? A, a lover? Our children? Our friendship? Uh, perhaps when we were younger, our parents and their, uh, their validation of our lives. We put such pressure on those relationships to, uh, to be God for us, to give meaning to us, that we crush them. We ask them to carry a weight they cannot carry because only God can carry that. And those relationships crumble. Good things. Beautiful things that become broken things because we ask of them things they were never meant, never created to carry. Or perhaps like Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, we look to our career to give us meaning only to find in the final analysis that we've been forgotten by our colleagues and we never achieve very much anyway. And we've invested our whole lives in something that actually is meaningless. Work is created and it is broken. A thing to delight in when it is good. But not to be treated as God. Not to be expected to fulfil God's role. Not money. Not the praise of men. Nothing in this creation can complete the jigsaw of our souls. Can make sense of all the pieces because it wasn't meant to. It, those are just the scattered fragments, just the pieces that, that we need to put into one whole picture. But at the centre, the thing that gives shape to the whole is God. All those created things depend on God for their existence and their purpose. It is only as we turn our hearts to him and worship the one God who made those things that we can properly delight in those things. That we can see them in their proper relationship and perspective. The universe does not revolve around you. Nor around our species. Nor around this world. Not even around the sun. But around God. The universe is profoundly theocentric. We were made to be profoundly theocentric. And if we ignore him. If we marginalise him. If we are just Sunday Christians. That, that church is a hobby. Like other people do woodwork and we go to church and nothing really changes. Then know that you are gutting your life of meaning and purpose. And robbing yourself of joy. We were made to worship God. And every good thing that he gives us is meant to turn our hearts back to him in praise. I don't know whether you like DIY. I got my hands dirty a little bit yesterday. I quite enjoy it. I think it's quite cathartic for me. I'm uh, so much time spent in books and sitting at desks that it's quite nice to, to, to get some splinters occasionally. Take a look at the, the seat backs in front of you. Which is the grain of wood runs across on all of them. I don't know if you've ever tried cutting a piece of wood with the grain. It's, it's wonderfully simple, isn't it? Because the wood just splits along the grain. You cut, it's, just, it's effortless. You ever tried cutting the same piece of wood against the grain? You cut across it and it's ten times harder and there's sometimes blood, occasionally tears. It's, it's not easy work. And that is how most of us live our lives. We have a God who created the universe. We have a God who has a purpose for the universe. He gives us a purpose to live with him and for him and worship him forever. To grow in Godliness, to become like Christ, to enjoy him forever. That is our purpose but so many of us cut against the grain. We bin God's plan for us and try to carve our own way through a world that is not intended to work the way we want it to. And life becomes hard. 
and there is blood and sweat and tears. And in the end we find that we have never lived. Friends, let me say this very clearly. There is one God, a creator and sustainer, who in his love has created a world for a purpose and has created you for a purpose. Your life has meaning because God intended you to live here now, to worship him. We must turn our hearts to Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He alone is worthy of our praise. Let me pray for us. Our loving God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you alone are creator, you alone are eternal, you alone are powerful, you alone will this world and us in it, you alone give gladness and joy and meaning and purpose and we are restless until we find all our satisfaction in you. So turn our hearts again to you. Cause us to delight in all of your ways and all of your purposes for us. Please help us to starve the idols of our hearts. Please help us to see in ourselves the things that we we give too much praise to. And instead, when we see good things, help us to turn our praise to you, the one who has created all of those things that are beautiful and yet broken and unable to carry the weight we place on them. Would you transform our work, our our relationships, our marriages, our friendships, our ambitions and desires and hopes and dreams, transform them to be in line with your purpose and help us to worship you. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen.